It's April 29th, 2021. This is Rook. He is a young Iranian-Canadian entrepreneur who came up with a simple idea during COVID quarantine to explore his lifelong love of cuisine. Now, Piaz Miaz has become a popular online presence, sharing cooking tips, innovative recipes, and Persian culture. Piaz Miaz joins us. But first, she is an Iranian-American actress with a remarkable resume on stage and screen from her Broadway debut opposite Robin Williams to The Good Doctor 24 and Emily Owens, MD. Nekar Zadegon is wrapping a successful few seasons as a star on NCS New Orleans, and she joins us. Plus another edition of It's All Persian to Us. I'm Gian Gomeshi. This is Rook. Hi there, welcome to episode number 106 of Rook. Hope you are keeping well. Wherever you are tuning in from around the world, Salam Dustana Aziz, we are on an ongoing mission to build a new audiovisual encyclopedia of Iranian diaspora identity coming to you on Spotify, SoundCloud, Instagram, YouTube, iTunes, Castbox, and Telegram. If you'd like to see some visuals with Rook, switch over to YouTube if you're not doing so right now. And if you like your Rook descriptions and bulletins in English and Farsi, Check us out on Telegram. Hello, the fabulous Keon. Hi, Gian. How are you? I'm good. Khubi. Bale, merci. Ali. Aliam. Nekar Zadegan, Keon, is joining mm. us from Santa Fe in the uh, American South in just a little bit. So um, I don't know if you, have you seen, I mean, I'm, I know you've seen her because she's yeah. been in so many programs. That I have you, actually, yeah. But, uh, but did you know before we booked her, did you know who Nekar Zadigan is? Not the name, but I know the face. I've seen her. So do you remember the series 24 with Kiefer Sutherland? Yes. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I was a big fan. There was a while when it was pretty much the biggest show in the world. This is around 10 years ago, a little over 10 years ago. And she had a major role on 24. It was in season eight where she plays the wife of a president from the Middle East uh, uh, or a place like that um, named Dahlia Hassan. And she was fabulous. Uh, she plays very strong women, sometimes from a Middle Eastern or an Eastern background, a different culture. But she was just remarkable. Mm. And uh, she's an American actor who's done work in Persian as well. She's toured. She's been to Iran. Wow. I'm very much looking forward to oh. Nekar Zadegan coming up on the show, the star of NCIS. By the way, it is Nekar, not Negar. I'm going to ask her say. about that. I'm not saying it wrong. Um, <laughs> also, Piaz Mioz. So Piaz Mioz was at a low point in his life a couple of years ago, mm -hmm. experiencing depression. A, few, a spontaneous trip to Iran, he says, was the beginning of changes in his life. 
including intermittent fasting. Mm. That was another one of the changes. Uh, now he's created this brand around cooking and Persian cuisine that has very quickly become a tangible success. He'll join us from Vancouver later on the show. Piaz Miaz, I'm looking at his real name is Masood. Looking forward to having Masood, Masood John on our show. Kian Jun. That is. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> There's this joke that uh, every time um, somebody calls me by my full Persian name, Kian Docht, Kian my Docht. automatic response is Bale. And <laughs> my, you know, somebody has, dis- one of my friends has discovered this, so they'll play with me and be like, Kian Docht, I'm a Bale. <laughs> do, uh, do white people, do English people growing up ever get Kian wrong? Did they call you Kian? Kian, yeah. yes. That was like, that was my, every time there was a substitute teacher, Kian, it's Kian. I'm thinking about Kian. for, because Negar Nekar, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm going to ask her if she anglicized yeah. her name or something, but I, I'm thinking about this for Clubhouse for tomorrow night. Yeah, we'll, get, we'll, we'll do Clubhouse at 8 p.m. tomorrow. We're going to b- back to our evening <laughs> slot okay. on Clubhouse for the Rook Town Hall. Yeah. I'm thinking about the topic of whether we ang- whether uh, of, of discussing the the anglicizing or the changing one's name mm-hmm. to become to try to to, to fit in somehow. And uh, I mean, this is something that immigrants face in general in yeah. Western culture. Oh, yeah. And uh, you know, the, you come here. Certainly, was the case with me. It was uh, do I keep Gian, mm. J-I-A-N. When I was a kid, nobody knew how to say that. Mm-hmm. It was horrible, you know. Uh, some people change their name entirely, just become like, you know, Fred. Understandable, yeah. yeah. Well, there's been studies done that every time um, an employer gets a resume with a, you know, long, oddly, mm. a name they haven't seen, basically, they usually disregard them. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if that's the case and, anymore. And, and, but have you noticed, like, sometimes you call an Uber and it'll be like Mark, and, Mar- you know, yeah, you look yeah. at the picture and you're like, well, I don't know if this guy's Mark. <laughs> yeah. I think this guy's Mayor yeah. Dodd, you know, <laughs> but it says Mark, you exactly, know. Exactly. Yeah. So, did you ever want to change Keon? Um, it was Keon's too easy. It, it's, it's easy fine. enough, but Ke- I, I tell you, my name Keon Docht always yes. like every time I go to the um, airport. Uh, not the case anymore because there's nowhere to go. Um, whenever the person looking at my passport looks at them, they, like, my face doesn't match my name somehow because they're like, Kian <laughs> Dokt. Like, right. what kind of name is well, that? Well, Dokt is so, challenging. Yeah. The ch, throwing yeah. in the ch so, is not easy yeah. for the white people. So yeah. that bothered me for yeah. a lot of my life. I, I was like, guys, like to my parents, you you know, I was born in America. <laughs> Couldn't you guys right. pick an easier name? Maybe Kian you should have named yourself I- Iowa. <laughs> is that <laughs> what it was? Idaho? Would. Where were you born? Des Moines, Iowa. Iowa. Yes. Yeah. Yes, yes. You know what's a good name for uh, if you want to be if you want to exist in English culture, but you're from Iran. What's that? Shia. <laughs> That's a good name. I actually. think Shia is a good Shia name. I love that name. No one gets Shia wrong, right? No, but no. people say Shia. Well, well, that's because that's you your, spell it. That's because you're Muslim. You're, <laughs> you're Islamic. You're like a mullah, the way you carry on. Yeah. yeah actually, I have a question. Which one is more difficult, Khe or Khe? For actually, mm. mm. probably. Really? Yeah. No one say, no one can say Gomeshi. They say Gomeshi. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, thank you for that question, Shia. <laughs> Everything was going so well, and uh, yeah. it's a good question. Can you ask some of these questions off the air? Maybe. <laughs> or, yeah. But I have an interesting yeah. story I will tell on Clubhouse tomorrow. Oh, oh, fa- you know who's great on Clubhouse? Who's actually, great? I've decided Shia. He is. Isn't he good? He's because like a we have poet. these we have these Rook Town halls, and there's all these like big name people yeah, and yeah, stuff yeah. that I'm always going to. Oh, let me go to this person now. Yeah. You know, they've got a hundred million followers. Yeah, yeah. And then you know, and Shia just sits there quietly yeah. and then about an hour in so you know I'll be like, okay Shia what you, mm, um, I was thinking and then he says something so, so profound. profound yeah mm-hmm. it's the best it's the Thank best you. Thank you. and then there's Reza also oh. 
on Clubhouse. <laughs> Actually, Reza is also an easy name, I think. For Reza? That's probably the easiest. Yeah. yeah. No one gets Reza wrong. No, they don't get it wrong. They, they mispronounce it sometimes. Reza, Reza. But yeah, it's mo- for the most part, they get it right. Yeah, Italians a- get it right. Italian. Easy, yeah. It's Reza. Yeah, huh. They pronounce it that way. But. That sounds like <laughs> <laughs> yeah. right. They're enjoying saying it as they say it. Gian's yeah. pretty easy, too. No, Gian, Gian is not me? easy. No, Gian. no, no. It's just because you know it now. Mm. No, no, no. Growing up, I mean, I've said this before, but I mean, people would just look at the name and I, the, the first day of school, the teachers, I mean, they, they it's forget gender. They, they wouldn't know what species it is. I mean, <laughs> they'd be like, what is this Armadillo. Is this a, what kind of, what is this? Well, is some kind of an alien? Well, it, 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 for, I mean, it's Yan or uh, Jian, or I mean, it was yeah. it was just. A, and then there is actually a a Chinese name that uh, is J I A N, and so you know, uh, oftentimes now in in very multi ethnic, multi racial places, uh, urban places, stuff, people will think that it's an Asian person. You know, mm. and then they'll look at me and kind of go, well, "Why <laughs> aren't you Asian. Chinese?" <laughs> you know, uh, uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, it's uh, one of the nice things about getting well known uh, as I built my sort of career uh, on the radio and television stuff was was that people started to know how to say Xi'an because it was a it was a disaster for <laughs> you know the all of this is becoming easier living in a place like Toronto, of course, it's, it's so multicultural and mul- that people have grow a facility to say these mm. names. I don't think. It in Toronto, nobody's going to say Reza, right? No, they no, they really get it. Uh, but um, but that, it wasn't always the case, even in this city. But I mean, there's this also is a very new there's thing. also more Persians that are visible in Hollywood and uh, tech and everything, all aspects of life. Yes. So I think that helps yes. too. Kian Docht. Yes. Speaking of uh, Persians who are have become successful, our last episode, uh, number one hundred and five on mm-hmm. Monday, Bahman Qobadi, the yeah. great filmmaker, the Kurdish Iranian filmmaker. Uh, it has already become, uh, on Instagram, on Spotify, one of our most successful episodes to date in terms of streams. In just three days, wow. this episode really connected with folks. And I'm uh, I'm honored again that Batman, it was a rare interview. It was mostly in Persian. Uh, if you haven't heard it yet, head over on whatever platform you're listening to us to listen to episode 105 after this one, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was very open. He said, I wonder if that's part of what's going on. It's being shared. I mean, I like to think the, the show is growing in general anyway, but uh, it's an in- episode and an interview that seems right. to have the, really resonated. There's just not that many interviews with him, and, and especially in English, so I think that's a major factor in it. I don't yeah. think there is any interviews that digs this deep into like his background and his mm-hmm. life story. Every interview that he's done is like press conferences. About yes, film. it's true. Right. That's mm-hmm. true. It's it is, about a, like a it is a revelation perhaps for yeah. Batman yeah. Gobadi or I, I, as I like to call him, Barry. Barry yeah. Gobadi. <laughs> Just to make it easier for the <laughs> North Americans. No, I don't call him that. <laughs> Respect to him for not changing his name. <laughs> uh, my, um, well, okay, so Clubhouse tomorrow night. Oh, I was going to say, if you do like what you hear on Rook, our last episode, or Faraz Aslani, or Kambis Hosseini, or Farzan Milani or whatever you've been uh, hearing on Rook and, and if you become a regular listener we really would appreciate it if you become a patron 
Uh, one of the ways we're trying to keep this thing alive is through crowdfunding rather than doing lots of ads and commercials on our program. And that means uh, folks who are listeners becoming patrons. So if you go to rookmedia.com and just go to the support us button, Shia, what do you do? You press support us. Then you can support us with $5 or $10. You become the best friend. Or <laughs> That's right. Yeah, And, and Shia has become a patron. For $5 a month. Now I need someone to become a patron so I can give Shia $5. <laughs> because he's a he's a patron. So now I feel bad, you know. So, uh, Sweet, yeah, you, it's a monthly, it's 5 or $10. And you get our newsletter. You get some some gifts, you get things like that. If you And you can also make bigger donations. But uh, rookmedia.com to become a patron of Rook. Go to the support us button. My day started... Uh, kind of I had a rocky start to the oh, day. Oh no, what yeah. happened? Well, uh my lovable French bulldog. Yes. Oogie. Yeah, what did he do? A, it's an Oogie story. What did he do? Oogie uh <laughs> Oogie went to the bathroom on oh. a uh oh. on a very manicured uh neighbor's lawn. Oh, no. And the neighbor was there, oh, saw me, was shaking her head. <laughs> and the worst part is I always go out with bags to pick up uh, Oogie's mm expressions yeah. <laughs> you know uh and but I, I i had already used the bag earlier and i didn't oh. have a bag and i tried explaining that to the neighbor but i could tell that they were that just sounded like a fake story oh. they were kind of shaking their head like and now so you know now anytime anyone sees any uh you know dog's expression yeah. anywhere in the community they're gonna think oh that's gomeshi's dog he walks around without a bag right so I don't know, I, and I kind of got, got mad at Oogie, but uh, you should have picked it up with your hands. Why yeah. would you? Just, no, no, I'd rather no, that no, than no, the no, shade. No. I, I thought I would. I, mean, I tried to explain it. Yeah, it was terrible. We woke. I walked away with my head down, and then I noticed Oogie's head was down as well. Like, he kind of, you know, got the idea that he'd done something wrong. He, he was sad today. I feel that you thought you could. Yeah. That's his face, though. You know, like, <laughs> no, no, no. He's a French bulldog. It's, it's always looks. Always. No, but yeah. this time he lay on the in the center of your room, and yeah, it was very. Sad. Yeah, he's melancholy. <laughs> he's, feel, he's thinking about difficult times earlier in the day. Yeah, his face always reminds me of somebody who listened to Darius. <laughs> <laughs> sad, uh, deep. <laughs> well, he does right. like Darius. He, yeah. he takes to it. Yeah, he takes yeah. to it. He kind of <laughs> settles in when you play that music, and he's like, he's back at home. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right, now we've got uh, an edition of It's All Persian to Us coming yeah, up today. Yeah. Is it, uh, can you give us, actually, I, I kind of have a sense of what it okay. is because you told me. Yeah. We're so going to talk about Tarof. Well, I know I should have told the guys. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Because it's uh, you know, I mean, they would have got it. I right was going to say it's something very exclusive to Persian culture. That is really gonna, we. Uh, there's no question we invented that. <laughs> you know, these things don't happen by accident. There's like thousands of years of like culture that was built into. I thought I just. I thought I started with my mom and my aunt <laughs> debating about who's going to do the dishes. <laughs> no, me. You know. Uh, well, that's great. We'll get to that. It's all Persian to us with Keon coming up. Piaz Miaz in a little over an hour joining us but first let's get to our first guest today she is an iranian american actor with an outstanding career on stage and screen nekar zadegan was born in heidelberg germany raised in northern california she studied theater and dance on a performance scholarship at the university of california santa barbara and graduated in english literature she's also studied
succeeded at the Sorbonne in Paris. Nekar made her Broadway debut with the role of the leper in the Pulitzer Prize and Tony Award-nominated Bengal Tiger at the Baghdad Zoo opposite Robin Williams. She has worked at some of the world's most prestigious theaters, and she's toured internationally with the Persian-language production of Satellite with Love. Her film credits include Unthinkable alongside Samuel L. Jackson, Judd Apatow's You Don't Mess with the Zohan, and the independent film Elena Undone. Nekar's television credits include Girlfriend's Guide to Divorce, The Good Doctor, 24, Emily Owens, MD, Masters of Sex, Here and Now, alongside Tim Robbins and Holly Hunter, and she has most recently been starring as Special Agent Hannah Currie on NCIS New Orleans. She is prolific and impressive, and right now, Nekar Zadegan joins me from Santa Fe today. Hello! Hi, you said that very well. Thank you for the introduction. <laughs> thank, you. thank you for approving of the way I said that. I appreciate it. What a pleasure it is to have you on this program. Thanks for doing this. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Know, you. I guess the breaking news is that you just finished shooting your final scenes and final episodes for NCIS New Orleans, a show that has been a big part of your life in recent years. The final episode airs on May 23rd. How, how are you dealing with that coming to an end? Um, yeah, you're right. It has been a big part of my life for the past three years. I joined the show um, three years ago, and I'm just really grateful. I'm really grateful that, uh, you know, I, I have a job that allows me to go someplace else and really live there and experience that life you know new orleans is a city that i didn't know and i really got to know it really well because we, it was a show that's 24 episodes and they don't do really 24 episodes anymore when you do 24 episodes it's over the course of nine months so that's really different than when you do like a limited series or a movie you know you go for 30 days it's like a big party you know but when you go someplace for um nine months and you do a show for a few years you really get to know the town and you really get to know your set and you know the people that you work with in a really different way um and so i'm just really grateful about it i really enjoyed it i had a good time on it it was a really cool character to get to play you know i just got i was like a cowboy you <laughs> i mean it's class you kicked American ass cowboy. you literally kicked ass <laughs> yeah and it was fun and i i you know i'm just so grateful that we got to do it during uh, this past year during you know the covid lockdowns you know, we were given that opportunity to continue working. And uh, now that things are opening up, you know, we're able to say goodbye to the show in a kind of really easy way, you know, and uh, everybody's going to be available to do new things at a time when things are opening. So I'm grateful okay, about so, that. Okay, so that's, that was the very professional answer. Uh, but it's an absolute fact. <laughs> okay. It's the only, okay. It's, but it's, how, it's are, the truth. how are you doing? You know, I always think the life of an actor, even a successful one like yourself, is such a hustle. You know, like unless you're an icon that can just pick any role you want, you're you're always hustling for the next gig. And and I've got to think that having a regular role in a big series, a franchise, NCIS, must be it must have been kind of a safety net. Is it hard from that standpoint, strictly as a careerist, uh, you know, to see this end? No. No, not for me. Um, but there is, it is all those things that you mentioned. Um, you just never know, you know? And um, I think when you jump into something and it's a big deal to leave your life. I, I have friends who, I have some friends who have kids that uh, won't 
take a job that's not in LA or New York or something because the kids right. are in you know school right. and right. you know what have you. Some people move their families around and stuff like that. I'm not in that position, and the idea of going someplace else to take a job is exciting to me, depending on where it is. I mean, you know, people take jobs for different reasons, and sometimes the location might you know play factor in that stuff. Um, so. So it is a big deal to do that. So the idea of it closing um, also kind of gives you your life back and maybe gives you another opportunity. After a while, not just in this business, but in your life, you recognize that every opportunity or chance or event, whether it's a closed door or an open door, is actually good, you know? And also that everything ends. Nothing lasts forever. Uh, and so yeah. uh, a change can be a, a good thing. Um, let me start. Let, by the way, I should clear this up before we get too far into the interview. And, I, and I'm sorry because I know you deal with this sometimes when you've done other interviews, either in Farsi or with um, Persian media. Your name is Nekar, not Negar. Nekar, yeah. Uh, well, my parents, uh, my mother loved the name Negar. And yes. uh, I was born in Germany along the Nekar Westheim um, River that runs through Heidelberg. And, um, you know, it was just a kind of a very interesting similarity. And so I was called Mikar um, for that reason. Um, So I might be the only one, but Negar is a beautiful name. And many people in my family call me Negar. Um, Persian people always call me Negar. And I I love to be called Negar. But yes, my name is Negar. Well, I'm basically doing this entirely out of self-interest because I fear that people listening think I'm saying your name incorrectly. And they're going to write in (laughs) and go, It's Negar, you know. Uh, I I, I, I once interviewed, uh, there was a band from the 60s called The Kinks. I don't know if you remember The the Kinks, but the lead singer. You know Lola and uh, girl, you really got me going and all that. And and the lead singer, his name, his last name is. It looks like Ray Davies and his brother Dave Davies, but it's actually said Davis. So when we were, I was, I was about to do the interview, and I said, you know, correct me, like how how do you actually? And he said, no, it's Ray Davis. You know, so throughout the interview, I'm saying Ray Davis, and then I get an avalanche of mail from people going, "You interviewed this guy, you don't know how to say his name," you know, because people always thought it was Ray Davies. So I'm traumatized by that, and I'm thinking people are going to think this is Negar, and they're saying, "Why do you keep saying Negar?" Uh, so. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that indulgent moment and for helping. I respond to a lot of names. You can imagine. Gro- I mean, I'm sure you know. Growing up in um, the states with a name that is that is foreign, you end up responding like I still. I'll res- anytime I call a cab, they always come to pick up Nicole, and I just get in. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I, me too. Sometimes I don't correct. And it's fine. Yeah, it's okay. Yeah. But actually, that's a good segue because, uh, I mean, uh, when I was thinking about this interview, I was thinking it's really hard to, to know where to start with you. You're, well, I called you prolific in the introduction. That really applies to you. There's so much Thank that you. you've done that I would want to talk to you about. I would talk to you. I would just do an interview about your character, Dahlia Hassan, on 24 because I was a, an that's addict fun. of that, that series. But, mm. but let me start with, or let me start with, you know, a few minutes into the interview um your background you you were born in germany why Mm. did your parents move to america Uh, my folks already lived in the u.s um my mother grew up here in california northern california 
And uh, then my father um, came to Los Angeles to pursue his education, his, you know, higher education with the intention of going back to Iran. I think any time you um, are educated in a foreign country, it's exciting for the country of your origin, you know, to come back to. And uh, that was their plan. They met here and they got married. And then my father got a job in Germany. He's an engineer and he got this very prolific job in Germany. And uh, they went there at the time the revolution was happening right. at that time. And uh, I don't think that they, I don't think anybody had the foresight to know how it was going to um, end up, but they ended up having two daughters during all that um, craziness. And in the um, early eighties, when we returned to the United States, um, I think, you know, over the years, there's been discussions in my family about, you know, what it would have been like had things been different, had they stayed in Europe, had they decided to go back to Iran mm -hmm. at the time. I mean, it's interesting. I think, I don't really think about it a lot, but from time to time, I think that this was absolutely not supposed to be my life, um, but it is. So I don't know if it's destiny or if it's fate. Or what. what do you think your life would be if it wasn't this? I have no idea. I mean, <laughs> you know, there, you know, you... In philosophical reading, you know, that the idea is that everything is just a detour to your your path that you will be on anyway, you know, and there's that possibility, right, that I would have been sitting here no matter what in Santa Fe with the Stetson. <laughs> but I don't know if that's true. I don't think it is. But I mean, you know, had we decided to go to Iran at that time, like with the limitations placed on and the difficulties placed on people. And I don't know that my path would have been the same. Had we stayed in Germany and I would have had a European upbringing, I don't, I can't imagine. I don't know. You, you know, you are in Santa Fe with a Stetson on right now um, <laughs> and, a, and a perfect American accent. And, and, and you've played, you know, these, these roles in, in some iconic kind of uh, TV shows and, and films. And, um, but you're also very Persian. I mean, you're, your Farsi is admirable. You've done tours in 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 Persian. You you uh, have been all in Persian media. You seem to be very comfortable in in that as well. How, how Iranian were you brought up? Yeah, despite the fact that your parents were um, had been living in the states and and Germany. Yeah, well, very much. I mean, we were we were brought up very very close to our heritage because both my parents are Persian. Um, because my grandmother lived with us and we were very close to family. Um, we also had the house that uh, everybody would come through. Um, at that time, there was, you know, a lot of people immigrating. And so we were the ones that were here. And so everybody would kind of come through our house. It was just, there was always, everything was very Iruni at home. Um, it was also very American. You know, my, my mom, especially growing up here, you know, she didn't listen to, she's first generation. So that's, that's its own thing too. Um, you know, she didn't listen to Iranian music and stuff like that, but my dad did. And anytime we had people over, you know, it was very Iranian, right? Dancing till four in the morning, drinking tea <laughs> endlessly. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, we had a, I had a very beautiful childhood and I was very, we grew up very close to the culture. And um, I'm grateful for that. And were you too young, I'm guessing, to, um, to really feel... Uh, or be impacted by the anti-Iranian sentiment that would have happened in the States following the revolution, following the hostage crisis in the early 80s into the mid-80s? Did, did that wash over you because you were just too young a kid? 
yes, I was too young for sure in uh, on one respect, but I was very aware of it as well. Mm. Um, I it was not as directed towards me, but I witnessed it all the time, and I think um, I think it's very lucky to be raised around multiple generations and around multiple um, cultural backgrounds. I think there's the idea that we do in America, you know, that people from all walks of life, but we really did um, because our family became so international. People lived in different countries and stuff like that. And yeah. so as a small child, when you have that experience, you're very sophisticated about um, what you're speaking of. I always felt like we were outside. I didn't know how much um, until kind of now you know um looking back I, but i always felt that i always felt like an outsider um and yes we witnessed that anti-iranian sentiment i dislike it completely i dislike any kind of iranian bashing whether it comes from um non-iranians and even more when it comes from iranians i just don't like it i disagree <laughs> mm -hmm. um because i think uh it's not helpful you really are international and, and you speak persian you speak english you speak french you speak german i, I don't know why why do you speak german you left when you were two that's that's impressive yes that's true but surely um, it wasn't in the first two years you learned german <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was, I was a really advanced two-year-old. Right, right. No, um, my, mom, my mother thought it was very important for us to learn the language of the country of our birth. Uh -huh. So that's the language I studied growing up. Um, and then because of my work, I traveled to Germany a lot um, on di with different projects. And so my German was just able to get better and very good. But if you, since you are so international, if you felt like an outsider or uh, in the States, where were you an insider? I never really had that feeling. I mean, it's not like I walk around feeling like an outsider here all the time, but there's othering happened a lot. Mm -hmm. um, explaining who you are and where you come from and stuff is something that um, becomes tedious only for yourself. You know, you start to begin to think that, oh, I, I must be, you know, I, this must be really boring to listen to. And then you're like, oh, no, I'm just bored because the 25th time I've explained it, you know what I right, mean? Right. I, you know what I'm talking about. Yes. Um, I do remember landing in Iran the first time I went there and looking around and suddenly feeling like, oh, this is where I'm from. You know that story about the ugly duckling and the swan and finally comes around the ducks and it's like, oh, I'm a duck. <laughs> <laughs> when, when was that? When was the first time you went to Iran? When I graduated from um, high school, I took kind of a gap year mm -hmm. when I um, traveled abroad and I studied abroad. And um, my grandmother was in Iran at the time, visiting family and uh, building schools for girls along the Caspian Sea. And so I um, went to join her. And um, it, was, it was a really cool experience just uh, because of her philanthropic work as well. But um, you know, going to Iran as a tourist, but also as an insider, yeah. um, an inside tourist. It's a, it's a really special um, opportunity because Iran is a very special country. It's singular in the entire world. It's not like any other country in the Middle East. It's very beautiful and very vast. And the people are um, 
I think probably surprising more for non-Iranians to witness that kind of hospitality and culture and sophistication. But uh, for me, knowing that uh, the people were going to be like that and being able to speak Farsi, it was really a wonderful opportunity to travel. And also the kind of dichotomies that exist in Iran mm-hmm. were just very eye-opening. And to go to a country like that at that time in one's life is is very enlightening and um it really opened my mind a lot you, you know if i can just uh, meditate on that indulge you and, and meditate on that that notion for a second because it it is part of what we often talk about on the show in terms of the identity piece you know of of mm-hmm. uh, the connective tissue of us being iranian this is interesting you're a kid who grows up in who's born in germany grows up in the states studies in california and then in france goes to iran and goes oh i feel like i've gone come home I mean, that's that's pretty interesting. Yeah, I, I suppose. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, it didn't take too long for me to also feel like, okay. <laughs> it's not that much of a <laughs> Really ain't me. <laughs> did, you, did you speak Farsi in, in the house growing up? With my grandmother. Not with, with my parents, not with parents, but with my grandmother. Yeah. I, it's sort of an obvious question. You Forgive me, but would you say that because you, you have – such an interesting as we segue into talking about your acting career you really are diverse in terms of the roles you've played and and um um quite deliciously so like it's like i look at your resume and go wow this is such a already i mean you're young but this this body of work is so interesting in in the diversity of it do you think your international um, upbringing and identification in these different languages and these different places have fed you as as an artist, as an actor, in terms of um, facilitating all that diversity of roles? I'm sure, but it's also what I wanted. It's also the way that I saw myself. It's also the way that I knew how to compete. So those were helpful in kind of creating the career path that I wanted and also what it you know was doled out to me you I think become um, a product of your opportunities more than anything else the way that I wanted to compete let me uh, let me come back to that that's interesting but first you've talked about the fact that your parents were actually this is counterintuitive in some cases so for a Persian family but were very supportive of you going into the arts was it clear that you were destined to be on stage and screen they knew that I wanted to. I always wanted to since I was small. It was the thing that I gravitated towards very much. It was a thing that I was very liberal artsy, even as a child, you know, and I was always um, very unafraid of um, being in kind of in the center of, of <laughs> attention or anything like I was, you know, I didn't have stage fright right. or anything like that. Um, and I, I just I found it very interesting. They were just really supportive of anything we wanted to do. They wanted us to do what we were good at and do what, you know, kind of got us going. They disallowed us from veering extremely from, um, you know, traditional academic paths. Mm-hmm. And they weren't supportive of necessarily, you know, like dropping out of school and joining the circus. Right. There was only two things we weren't allowed to do. We could do anything we wanted, but we weren't allowed to cheerlead and we weren't allowed to model. Anything else we could do. <laughs> wow, those were they, they carved those two things out, huh? Yeah, those were the only two things we weren't allowed to and do. And what's wrong with uh, modeling? I mean, uh, well, I think that um, you know, there's for a young girl. Um, I think they felt that they didn't want us to, you know, held up as an object mm-hmm. of 
the sexualization and also, you know, photographers are pretty sleazy across mm -hmm. the board. And I don't, I think they kind of didn't want us to be victims of that scenario. They did their best to protect us from those aspects. And, you know, the rest was up to us. <laughs> you know, you do do your due diligence. You get the degree in literature, but it impresses me how young you got started. I mean, we've had people um, on the show, actually, uh, you know, actors and actresses on the show who, to, especially with a Persian background, talk about how they had to do all this university and then they had to kind of, there's this like decade-long process of... <laughs> of negotiating with the parents to, you know, I want to go and do pilot season and what, I mean, you know, but when you got to start at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, you, you must've been a teenager, right? Still. Yeah, I was, I was in high school. Mm -hmm. Now I have to ask you about that because I have some experience with the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. I played there many times. I and know. It is just, especially in the 1990s, you were there in the late nineties, I think. And it yeah. was, it was this magical, for folks who don't know, there's the Edinburgh Festival, which is an official theater festival, but then the Fringe Festival was this thing. I mean, it is this thing, but you know, I, I, I don't know what it's quite where it's at right now, but it, it was this magical thing in the late nineties of a diversity of artists, thousands of performances of all different kinds happening in this beautiful town in, in Edinburgh in Scotland. Mm -hmm. And so tell me about that time for you and, and what you learned from getting your start there. Oh, it was so cool. What a wonderful experience. I know, you know, just yourself having been there too. It's just so cool. There's so many people, so many artists from so many different places. And it was just, and remember, you know, you're doing a few like, we were doing two plays in tandem. The people are there doing like six or seven yeah, shows yeah. in tandem. It's just so cool. And you're staying, it's like a student life. Yes. You know, it's very academic. And it's just a celebration of art. And people are wild and nights are late. And it's kind of mature, but also childlike. And, you know, in Edinburgh, which is very like fairies and leprechauns. And <laughs> you know what I mean? And Loch Ness Monster and- um, What were you doing? The, what were you playing in? So I was doing two shows in tandem. One was Beauty and the Beast and one was Peribanias, which is like this folkloric Beauty and the Beast. Um, was it a, it had to be something of a coming of age, huh? You're this mm -hmm. Iranian girl who's in, Scotland at the age of 18 performing at this Fringe Festival. I mean, the Fringe was you would do your gig and then you would finish and run to go see some other, you know, yeah. comedy performance or wild band playing or whatever, right? Yes, absolutely. I mean, yeah, it was a coming of age. It was like, you know, it was the first time that um, I kind of had that experience of freedom too, you know, real like freedom on my own. I think I, it was the first time I think I'd gotten drunk. <laughs> um, at the Roxborough Hotel, I remember, on White Russians, because it's the only drink I knew. <laughs> we sat around at the Roxborough pub and had some very English experience there. It was fun. So all of this is kind of a setup, because just a few years later, you make your Broadway debut. And, I mean, it's quite spectacular. You, you make your Broadway debut with Robin Williams. Um, what, tell me what that meant to you. Somehow, you know, it just happened. It was really wonderful to gain Robin because the role had been written for him. And what was really cool was, yes, it was Robin's Broadway debut. So it was a very big deal. Everybody came to see the show. You know, the, the politicians came, all the actors, everybody came, you know. Um, but what was more exciting than that was that we were so prepared 
for the show. We were like, our rehearsals weren't us rehearsing. Our rehearsals were Robin rehearsing and getting the flow, getting into the flow with us. And what was so cool was that Robin's process was vocal, you know. And so it was like watching this masterclass um, unfold before us. That was really our rehearsals. Um, was watching Robin kind of get to know the character and stuff. And uh, he was very serious and very much one of us. And um, he wasn't really Robin until we had press day. And then he like turned on and then I was like, I remembered, oh yeah, we have Robin Williams in the show. When you say it was a masterclass watching him, can you put into words something that, what did you, what did you learn from Robin Williams? Well, because his process was very vocal, you know, and sometimes, you know, you're working with an actor and they're processing it, um, but you're not aware of how they're processing it, you know, because mm. they're just processing it. But his process was just very vocal. We'd give him a note and be like, oh, okay, so, um, oh, yeah, you know, I'm the tiger, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm the biggest cat in the jungle, I'm the, you know, so he'd be talking it out. <laughs> oh, that's what well, you mean you know by what vocal. Mean? Yeah, I see. So yeah. he was, he was almost narrating how he was learning, how he was taking on the role. Exactly. Yes, that's exactly right. That's so he was interesting. narrating how he was learning it. I think anytime you witness somebody who's very good at what they do, figuring it out in front of you, it's a masterclass. I know I love that about sports. That's why I love sports so much. And I think that watching people play at the top of their game is exciting. Watching anybody do anything at the top of their game is exciting. You know, even I mean, the OJ trial was exciting for that reason. <laughs> you know what I mean? You're watching these lawyers just duke it out. And, and I, so he was very just it was just him in, in this role he carved. You got to see it. Nekar, it's so interesting that you're, you've are you been successful on stage and screen. I mean, I don't know if this is like an old school idea I have, but it, I feel like it used to be that actors uh, would generally stay in their lane. You know, they'd be a stage actor or they'd be a, a film actor. There was a few crossovers, but I think of someone like Bernadette Peters, she's always been you know known for her stage work. And then there's somebody that you've I only ever that. seen on TV. And... Uh, you've somehow done both throughout your career. Is it a different toolbox to perform in a play versus a TV show or a film? One would think it is. How different is it for you, and how do you learn to navigate those two worlds? Well, I'm very comfortable um, with with it now in both worlds. Um, I don't know. I think it's different for everybody. I heard Alan Alda say once that the only thing he does different when he does a play is he talks louder. <laughs> and I think, you know, maybe that's a simplification of it. It kind of, you know, it's kind of the same thing. But there are different things about theater that you don't um, get to do with the camera. First of all, the performance is all your own. The director at a certain point will leave and then it's, it belongs to you and the actors. And that control is desirable. I think then with film and television, since you don't have that, the trust and also freedom of that, like so a lot of times I do watch the things that I'm, that I'm in, but you know, sometimes I don't, especially if it's a series and it's been going on I'm like, Oh, did you watch the show last night? No, I, I didn't <laughs> watch the 300 <laughs> other episodes, but I missed the one last night. You know what I mean? Because once it's, once I'm done shooting it, it's really, I'm done. My job is done. Huh. And then I watch it for fun, but it's not, it's, often not what I did, you know, exactly. Sometimes it is, but sometimes it's not. And sometimes it's cooler with the music and the, you know, the editing, it's just 
awesome. If you're doing green screen, for example, you have no idea what it's going to look like, you know, then there's things like just the camera, the camera, while it can be intimidating, I think sometimes for theater actors when you first start, it's actually a really um, helpful asset because um, it's like that one person in the audience that's always there and you can just play to them the entire time. So mm. it's very intimate. A raise of an eyebrow can be meaningless in theater, but it's very effective on camera. Um, so I do tend to want to play bigger. And when you say bigger or smaller, I think that can be confusing for a young actor that's not certain what those things mean, because it doesn't mean so much bigger or so much louder or overplaying at all. It um, just means that your your house is bigger. And, you know, instead of a raise of an eyebrow, maybe you get a whole turn of the head, right, right, you know, right. and, and using your body and everything. Right. These are things you don't get to do uh, all the time in uh, film and television. But you learn to um, have more freedom, actually, with the camera than I think you originally think when you're start, and starting. And as Alan Alda says, you don't have to talk as loud. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. When I was young, I did a bunch of musical theater. And you know that musical theater is like, you know, it's, it's huge. It's big. Everything has yeah. to be really big. And and um, Adam McGoyan, strangely enough, the, the Canadian director had spotted mm -hmm. me and said and brought me in for an uh, for an audition on camera audition. And uh, <laughs> and it was just so horrible when I think about it because I, I did this audition and I was like musical theater guy and he kept on and I didn't know Adam McGoyan at the time. I mean, he, he hadn't become the sort of very, very famous Canadian director that he is now, but and but he's known for his kind of minimalist, like play everything. And he kept on going, um, yeah, could just, just a little bit less, just smaller, you know? And I'd be like <laughs> delivering the lines like I'm in, you know, uh, some, some uh, Broadway musical, you know? It was just a disaster. Uh, so I, I, I know that there's something very different that you do when you're on camera than, um, and then when you, what you do on stage, I was also a busker, you know, which you're yelling to people to, you know, in Edinburgh, come, come see us, come watch us juggle. Right. You know, so, uh, it was, it was a disaster. Oh, when, you juggle. No, 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 no. I don't juggle. I, I mean, I tried to, to believe me. Uh, I, I don't, no, no. But I mean, that's what we, that's the kind of thing we were doing, you know, uh, back in the, in the day as, as buskers, anything to, to draw a crowd. Uh, yeah. And you have to be bigger than life. And then you're sitting in front of Adam and going, and he's just like going, no, 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 no. Just less, please. Uh, you know. So when you talk about control and, and this, this, um, back to the versatility that you have, um, I wonder about, I, I look at these different roles you're playing, and I wonder about the elements of your own character and personality in the characters you play. Like, for example, your Iranian background. Does that, does that fuel, does that go into how you prepare for a gig or identify with your characters? It depends. It depends. If I feel like I want to give it to the character, if I feel like it's, you know, makes sense for the character, but not all the time. Different I think every project, I come at it differently sometimes more similarly than others i think i have a process that i can be very comfortable with but um you know it doesn't it's not always necessary sometimes acting is easy you know sometimes the, the stretch is greater but sometimes it's not so far so you 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 played a popular character named dr gina bandari in the uh mm -hmm. cw medical drama emily owens uh, md she's a proven and uh, innovative surgeon and the story goes that she was given a new last name after the pilot did you play a role in choosing the, the character's last name is that something you would do to suggest <laughs> uh yeah it might be but i didn't suggest it at the time the showrunners actually um asked me 
if it was okay if they if they um, molded the character um, more to my identity. And I thought it was a great idea because in our conversations, it wasn't something that was going to kind of predicate the character. It was just to involve um, my background in it um, in a matter of representation. And I um, enjoyed that from a political perspective. And I thought it was a great idea. And they chose the name. And uh, to me, it was funny. To them, it wasn't funny. But Bandetti is funny to me because it's a dance. (laughs) (laughs) So I say the name Gina Bandetti with a wink. But, you know, but no, they were, I, I, I appreciated that they wanted to do that. I thought it was really cool. I'm but, glad they wanted to. You know, I, I mentioned earlier that I was an addict of the show 24, and this is where I would have first seen you. Um, you you had this major role. Actually, when you played Dahlia Hassan on, on 24, it, I think it was at the peak of 24. It was when 24 was ba- basically the biggest show in the world. Uh, yeah. How did you land that role, and what did that mean to your career? Um, it was... Um a very big show. It was a very big international show. And um, I landed that role. I've been doing television here and there. I was doing a, a theatrical project at the time, but I was also, anytime I was back in Los Angeles, I was, you know, um, trying to get my footing in television. And um, that role came to me at a time when I, my agent called and he said, you know, I don't think that this is right for you. Uh, I don't, I don't think they'll necessarily want you for this because I was 27 years old at the time. And the role was a, a woman, a very, you know, kind of much world, much more worldly than I, mm-hmm. um, woman, you know, with a 20-year-old daughter and uh, the first lady of this country and, and stuff. And so he said, I got you this audition, you read for it, but just, you know, so you can make an impression on these producers because it's a big deal project and maybe they'll bring you for something else. So I really had the freedom of not really expecting to book the role when I went to read for it. I tried my best to, you know, look right and appropriate i didn't obviously age myself or anything like that but what i always recommend to young when i speak to young actors because we talk about this you know how should i look for the audition and i never ever personally i mean it's these things are all personal but i never try to go in as a character oh really (laughs) or caricature yeah you know like i I would never go in for to read for a doctor in scrubs or something because to me the character is deeper (laughs) (laughs) you know what i mean i just try to not be the opposite of it <laughs> you know um so yeah i went in trying to look you know to trying to be the sophisticated person that i was trying to execute you know and they really i just did it you know the old-fashioned way i went and i auditioned and uh, they really liked me for it and um they brought me back and the matter of maturity didn't come into play until they had cast um the girl who played my daughter and then we figured out that we were going to um have to build the characters so the age seemed further apart because we were about the same age at the time. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, and so we did, and I was very happy to do it because I'm a character actor. Mm. I play a lot of leads, but I'm actually a character actor. And so creating this character of this woman who was accented and much older than I with a completely different, you know, life. And, and what it meant for my career was that um, I was, it was kind of the, first opportunity that I'd had at, at that time to really have some have a role that was recognized by, you know, other people who work professionally in the, in the industry, other producers, other casting people and stuff like that. So, yeah. Um, I mean, it was important. It was a hit show. Uh, you, you're very powerful. Your, your character is very powerful in, in, in this mm-hmm. um, and empowered. And 
it's very memorable. I mean, I, rem- I, you know, I as soon as somebody you say Dahlia Hassan, I remember, you know, there's a lot of characters on Twenty Four, but I remember your character, and so the the sort of um, maybe the the juvenile way of, of of thinking of this would be that the the day you know a- after that series, you know, the phone's ringing off the hook and you can get any gig you want. With, with, <laughs> But I mean, uh, was it sort of like that at all? In a way, I almost felt like I was being punished for doing a good job. Like everybody after that thought I was this much older woman, accented <laughs> woman. And so a lot of those right. kinds of roles were coming my way. Right, right, right. And you don't, I didn't want to make a career of this character. Right. My interest was um, to play a variety of characters. And also, you know, I, I wasn't right for those characters. I remember going to an audition and um, you know who was there? For, first of all, the audition was uh, for this woman of this age. And I got there and I was like this 27, 28 year old girl. And everybody there was, you know, 60 or pushing 60, all these actresses. I shouldn't have really been at that audition. And, the only, and you know, after a certain night, now I wouldn't go to something that was so wrong for me. I mean, I wouldn't even entertain something like that. But at the time, I really wanted to make an impression. And I want to, you know, I was taking chances and trying to get seen and trying to get noticed. You know, I didn't know anybody in the business. And I, I had to figure out my own way and find a way to get work. And it's it's hard. But well, you know, well, it's hard. Well, let me ask you about it being hard. Because I I look at your career and I think, I mean, I, I think you have the best career. I think you're, I think the career you have is the best. I would choose that over the annoyance of being some, you know, uh, uh, celebrity that's always in us weekly or something like that and and but you're but you also have you're always working your your roles are great roles um and i'm talking to you and it's it's almost deceptive because you you seem unflappable you seem very confident um and i and i certainly think at the top of the list is your talent i mean you are just really good at what you do that's why you get these gigs but but you've been working regularly in good roles and i suppose i want to address just how you are a middle eastern woman we so often hear that hollywood is tough if not impossible especially for non-white women getting roles your resume would suggest that you get anything i mean you just you've done what what you wanted to tell me about whether it's been challenging for you and how you've somehow broken that mold of of uh, difficulty that you know non-white women can have yeah um i don't think i was as aware of that when i was younger i really didn't know i was just trying to figure out how to get work hmm. that was how i competed was because that was what i thought i had going for me and it was also just what i could reach out to you know at when I had first started working um, as a young woman in my 20s, young women in their 20s tell a certain story, especially before, you know, now they talk a lot about diversity and women in the industry and a lot of roles have opened up, I think, with um, more women and and people of diverse backgrounds behind the scenes and also what um, the appetite of the audience seems Mm -hmm. to um, dictate, seems to be something more interesting than what 
or, or fresher, you know, than what has been in the past. And the writing, um, the writing has, has changed. It's become... Yes, yeah, I mean. yes. So it gives opportunities for different people. They're still figuring that out, sort of, and everybody wants to get on the right side of this thing. Nobody wants to be canceled. They're so scared of, you know, talking about it, you know. Right. But... Um, as a, as a young woman in my 20s, those roles that are that go to young women in their 20s were the roles that were coming my way. The sexy girl in the bikini. I, I can't tell you how many times I auditioned in a bikini or, you know, whatever. I can't even, it's like crazy to some people when you say that. They're mm. like, what? <laughs> you know, but this is, this is the industry, you know. And, um, but that surprises me because I don't, you know, your resume doesn't have a lot of those kind of roles. Yeah, well, I didn't book them ah. because, um, you know, you go there because they think you sell a certain thing. But at the end of the day, at that time, the person that was selling that story was someone who was white. You know, the beauty of the high school musical was a white girl. Mm was a blonde girl. Right. The beauty of, you know, and I was always there with, with you know, those kinds of things. You're there with a, with a few actresses and then just models. You know, these are the auditions you're going to when you're in your 20s. And I didn't even realize how not white I was until mm. this industry makes you even more not white. And um, I didn't know that. I can tell you that now, but I didn't know that at the time. And so I had to cultivate, I had to learn, luckily, I was a character actress, and so I could compete at that level. But, you know, I have to say, you have played immigrant women. You've played, I mean, you've played non-white characters. But, you know, in comparison with a lot of other actors, especially men, uh, who we always have to have the conversation about how they either did book or tried to avoid but couldn't, you know, roles as terrorists or religious radicals or bad guys. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, you look like an Iranian woman, but you've... Your characters that you play are nuanced. They're interesting. They're they're not these caricatures. Uh, so I'm trying to figure out the the magic sauce. Is is that just because you were smart in selecting what you've been able to play, or you got? I mean, how do you I mean, think to some degree, you know, because that is one one power you have is who you choose to work with. And um, I was really clear about what I wanted to do. I was really um, certain about my capability and I conveyed that very easily to the people that I worked with, the people that I hired to work for me to help garner opportunities for me. And so, yeah, I was always looking for what I was looking for. Easily there were things that uh, I didn't feel like I could give anything to. And so I wouldn't um, necessarily be interested in reading for those things, but there was a lot of things I did feel like I could give something to, and that's that's what I wanted to read for. Uh, before I let you go, you, th just back to this, you're being this international person, this uh, this identity. Uh, this international femme fatale. What this, can I tell you about it? Yeah. <laughs> I, I wonder what you've heard um, over the years, and and even more recently from Middle Eastern, from Iranian people. I mean, do, you're you're interesting because uh, as opposed to someone like Shohreel Dashlu, who um, by by the roles she's taken, everybody in the Iranian community kind of knows her. I wouldn't be surprised if there's some Iranians who don't even know that you're Iranian, you know, who are watching you on uh, on 24 or NCIS and don't even make the connection necessarily. What do you? Yeah, I think a lot of people don't know that I'm Iranian, um, but I am, <laughs> and uh, it has been just the virtue of of my path 
to work on the projects that I've worked on, but um, it's not because I don't want to work on Iranian uh, produced projects or Iranian told stories. In fact, one of the reasons I don't work on a lot of um, Iranian, Irano specific projects in the States is because um, I find the, the, the US perspective of our stories and our lives as very small. And um, it doesn't turn me on to read a project with a small perspective. Right. Um, I, we are not sitting around talking about being Iranian all day long, you know. And in these stories that uh, through an American <laughs> lens seems very, <laughs> very um, right, right, right. strange to me. Um, but the but the Iranian told stories that come out of Iran, for example don't deal with that they get to deal with um their lives europeans do a, a better job of this as well maybe it's because um their relationship to their history uh, forces them to understand us and to know us um, in a different way whereas we don't have that here in the states um our history doesn't require us really to know about it would help you know it'd be nice for americans to have a broader understanding of world history maybe they will oh hi charlie it's okay charlie charlie can feel the interview coming to an end he's like okay yeah yeah yeah. uh listen it is uh charlie it's okay buddy take it take it easy take it easy it's okay charlie it's okay buddy it's okay they're very sweet i promise oh no i i have no doubt i have no doubt all dogs are sweet ultimately um, so uh, I, I have to thank you. I mean, I really appreciate more than anything. You're on your little epic adventure, following a grueling uh, uh, end to your to your big series and NCIS. Uh, and I, I appreciate you making the time and and uh, there in Santa Fe to do this. It's such a pleasure. Thank you so much for this. Take care of yourself. Yeah, I hope to see you soon. Thank you so much. All right. Bye-bye. Take care. Talk soon. Bye bye. Nikar Zadegan, an Iranian-American actress with an outstanding career on stage and screen. She has just wrapped shooting uh, NCIS New Orleans, uh, where she stars as Special Agent Hannah Khoury. Nikar Zadegan joined us from Santa Fe today. Phone's back on for Captain Reza Shaya, the fabulous Keon. You know, Reza, I was thinking about you uh, as we were finishing off this interview and seeing you across the glass. The, yeah. As a as a an actor yourself and as a, a person involved in film and TV, she is uh, Nekar is is. I mean, it's not to say that other actors we haven't had on aren't professional. But you just the, the sense of confidence from yeah, her. Yeah. I would. I just think she should be cast in everything because yeah. you know she's going to be good, and she knows she's yeah. going to be good. You know. Yeah, she's got it to like. I don't know for lack of better words, she's got it together. She's very. She, there's a sense of professionalism in her that you you just feel like she's done her homework. She can't get it done. And and you'll be satisfied with the results. I don't know what it is. She she just she well, rejects I, this person. In the beginning, when I was like, uh, "Are you? Do you feel 
sad about NCIS ending. It's a steady gig, uh-huh. you know. I know it's a hustle being. An, she's like, no, no, I'll get another job. I, you know, it's yeah. like, okay, this is a successful actor. Yeah. You know, this is not somebody who's like I would be gripping onto that series, mm-hmm. going, oh my god, what's next? And Holy. she really cares about the crafts. Like it seems like she's not really like a, doesn't care much about the fame and stuff like that. She really cares about the job, and you can tell. You from, see, Reza? Yeah. This is what I'm I trying know. to tell you. I know. Let this be a lesson to you. Yeah, unlike me, who cares only about fame and <laughs> <laughs> glory. But That's right. I got to learn from her. Uh, Shia, Keon, anything you want to say before we get to I just wanted to say I, I couldn't help but feel a sense of pride. Um, I've said this before. Growing up, there just was not any Persian actresses or actors or singers or anybody that was really visible um, to a kid like me growing up Persian. That's why it just wasn't cool. You're not, you, you, know? don't, you don't consider Egyptian actor Omar Sharif uh, <laughs> well, that, that's, a role you know, model? for us uh, you know we can't claim him he's not Persian so it's just I'm so proud to see so many Iranians coming to the limelight and being visible I I I was waiting for this day and it's finally coming it's kind of you mean this day or you mean in general in general just you know we've made it I think in a way we've made it as a culture well said uh, said. and I I I don't want to you know to the horn of Rook, but Varan, like, um, if it wasn't for Rook, I would never know about these people, really. I really wish Rook existed when I was a teenager. Then I would have maybe I don't know if Rook could exist in the same way. I mean, it, it is. It wouldn't have. It, given that it's a show about the diaspora, right. uh, you know, or uh, uh, exploring our stories of the diaspora, it was a smaller diaspora, exactly, right? Exactly, yeah. Uh, yeah. And a, I mean, the fact is Maybe that not when you were young. That was only four <laughs> years ago. <laughs> wow. Aren't you 19? Young yes, Keon? Yes, yeah. I'm but 19. See, but Keon is right because there's like the, I feel like this uh, what we're go this phase that we're going through is a phase that a lot of uh, European migrants went through when mm. they migrated to North America like for instance like Dean Martin one of the greatest American um, showmen mm-hmm. actor singer he was actually Italian mm-hmm. Dino Paul Crocetti that was his full name but he had to change his name to Dean Martin and become mm. Americanized as much as humanly possible to fit in because they weren't as like that welcomed if the if you were bring that up on clubhouse tomorrow night i know we're talking about names that's a good example uh uh, but you know i and i've said this before and i'm sure i'll say it again um one of the reasons i wanted to be brad pitt or robert redford or you know whatever when i was a kid is because there weren't persian role models Mm -hmm. necessarily in 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 at least in western media you know and and i joke about omar sharif but i remember as a kid i mean it came out years before i was born but watching um dr zhivago Mm. and even lawrence of arabia and seeing this guy and going wow you know and he's the cool guy in both those movies like in in dr zhivago you know julie christie loves him you know and and i'm like oh and he's one of us he's a and meantime he was egyptian and they were you know they had to you know they changed his eyes and did all kinds of things through space to make him look more western but nevertheless he was a role model Mm. uh, watching some rerun one night of of Dr. Zhivago because there was just a a dearth of anything else and and I'm a kid growing up and and the the revolutions happened and there's pictures of Khomeini on every night on on ABC News you know so what do you what do you got to do so it's true that not only that Rook exists but if you're a kid now, a Persian kid, mm-hmm. and you're growing up with, you know, you can be growing up in Canada or yeah. the States or in England with all of these people, cool DJs and actors and right. and, and people like Nick Carr. You and, have people and, you to know. look up to yeah, now. It's, it's great. Amazing. It's great, yeah. man. Yeah. Uh, we're going to get to Piaz Miaz in just a few minutes, but it's Thursday, and you know, 
She's a dear friend, a diaspora blend, a gym workout cat, a bicultural brat, a lovable, smart, funny human, and on a journey to discover what we actually have discovered. Here we go, Batshaw. It's Thursday, and it's all Persian to us with Kion Nademi. Keon. Well, we had a nod to this earlier in the show, but we are standing at attention. What is this week's induction into the It's All Persian to Us Museum? Well, like I've mentioned, this is something that's exclusive to Persian culture. So you guys, have you ever found yourself in a situation where you go to pay for something and the shopkeeper tells you, no, no, please take it. Your money's no good here. Or perhaps you've witnessed... In a Persian shop. Yes. In a Persian <laughs> shop, yes. Not, not at the local Best Buy, <laughs> yeah. unfortunately. Try that there and yeah. see what happens, yeah. Or perhaps you've witnessed two people spending hours arguing over who should enter the room first. Yes. Or maybe you've even... Me and Shia, we <laughs> yeah, have that debate every, every day. day. Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe you've even stayed at a friend's house when they offered to sleep on the floor so you could sleep in their own bed. Hmm. And when it comes time for you to leave, they insisted, no, please, stay longer, perhaps even forever. If you've experienced any of this, you've been the victim of a very ancient practice, a poetic dance of communication known as tarof. Yes, this is the Persian art of politeness, a blueprint for courteousness and civility. It's found everywhere in daily uh, Persian culture, from places like the supermarket to the bank and even in the comfort of your own home. I'm sure you guys have experienced a lot of it with your own parents. It's inescapable. With me and Oogie, in fact. (laughs) (laughs) Oogie enters the room. I say, no, you first, please. And then he goes. So it basically (laughs) underlies all forms of communication in Persian social life. It's used with strangers, friends, and family alike. Taruf is an unwritten collection of actions and verbal formulas that make up the Persian etiquette. Persians in general are notoriously known to be some of the nicest and most hospitable people in the world. And this is especially the case when it comes to their guests. In my household growing up, for example, we had a uh, special room. It was basically, it was called the guest room, but it was basically like a guest entertaining room. Right. And this room- We was, had that too, it was called you know, the otal. Yeah, yeah, my mother was like, not a tui otal, don't go in the room. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah we, what uh, was in the otal? So it was just honestly like the Furniture. Most, and, like and, like and, antiques, like yeah. golden antiques. It it was like a museum of like everything Persian, basically. And this room was reserved for whenever there's guests over. That's and right. if any of us went in the other room, like, get out of there. <laughs> wait, wait, any guests or like special like, guests? Like, like if the guests. aunt comes over, who comes no, no, over no, no. Like, like every now and again? Any, any guest any that guests. comes yeah. over. Yeah. Anyone, anyone uh, outside of the nuclear family exactly, yeah. <laughs> who must yeah. remain suppressed, repressed, and <laughs> oppressed and unable to go in yeah. the room. Yeah. I mean, it was literally, my sister and I were not allowed in the room room unless right. we had unless you know like an ant was over yeah. and then yeah. we can go in the room yeah. and and even special treats would be hidden from us and they were only reserved for special guests so me and my brothers were basically peasants compared to these <laughs> guests who were treated like royalty you know i'm still seeing a therapist by the way i'm, I'm making great progress moving on yes and you're saying that's a version of toto yeah, yeah, yeah yes exactly yeah so i'm getting we're gonna how save the room for you yes, yes yes that's what like guests were essentially seen as sacred people <laughs> So this is common in most Persian households. Entertaining guests or mehmoons is sacred. And and of course, there's a shower of tarofs happening on such events. Well, this didn't all happen by accident, you know. 
Taruf is an ancient practice with roots as far back as 700 BC, but perhaps even further than that, when the first monotheistic religion was beginning to gain traction in the Persian Empire. Taruf came from Zoroastrianism. We'll get to this on another show, by the way. Well, the three pillars of the sacred uh, religion are good deeds, good thoughts, and good words. Yes, this is the key teaching and virtue of the religion, where its followers, mainly Persians, must always try to use kind words throughout their lives. So, of course, this is something that got built into the foundation of our culture. Good manners, respect, modesty, personal respectability, and humility in the face of others. Well, after practicing this for thousands of years, and being the Persians that we are, we took these to the extreme by telling complete strangers things like, no karitam, meaning I'm your slave, or korbunet beram, meaning I die for you, etc., etc. That's what it means. (laughs) Yeah. I say korbunet beram to Rez all the time. (laughs) Would you die for him? I would die for him. But I would die for him, you know? (laughs) Exactly. You see how extreme we are? We we take everything (laughs) to the next level, yeah. Korbunet beram. Yeah. Means I would die for you? Yeah, I'd die for you. I will sacrifice myself. I'd sacrifice myself. Wow. (laughs) You see? Yeah. yeah, so there's a there's a huge list of these exaggerated Tara phrases us Persian use. Mm. So, well, as all the other monotheistic religions of the world can be linked back to our very own Zoroastrianism, so can European etiquette. Yes, it's rumored that the pillar of using good words in daily life, or good manners rather, also spread to Europe from Persia. Well, you might be wondering to yourself, but how come Persian etiquette seems like a little bit too much, dare I say? Well, that's because of how Persian language is used. Westerners use language merely as an instrument to get the message across. Persians, however, communicate with flowery, elegance, and highly symbolic patterns of speech. Well, duh, we've only produced the the world's most famous poets of all time. Hafez, Rumi, Ferdowsi, Saadi, Khayyam, and the list goes on and on and on. And so, if you find yourself being offered something by a Persian, do the right thing. Be polite and decline three times before you accept it. This is the art of etiquette known as taruf. But please, I insist, it's all Persian to us. That was great. Well delivered, uh, Keon. And uh, now I have absolutely no qualm with the uh, the the pretext of this, which is that uh, it's an induction into, yeah. as I call it, the museum of it's all Persian to us, yeah, because yeah. I believe that Persians would mm-hmm. have. Uh, discovered this or or started this and i see that you've now given us a history of it i will however say this was a particularly uh chest beating positive <laughs> skew of uh Tarof, when there are uh negative some some mm, possible yes. negative versions of it of, right. of it in fact it may even at times be considered disingenuous yes. that that uh, things are said that are not you know you get into the cab and the cab driver says no please don't give me any money and yeah, then yeah. i mean were you to take the cab driver up on that they'd be like <laughs> what are you talking about buddy give me my money right, right. so i mean <laughs> these things that are said that we don't really mean yeah. um i think can also be problematic so I don't, I think this, uh, like I said, this like started thousands of years ago. So it just kind of built, 
you know, into our culture, whereas um, it became part of our communication where mm. we have to, mm. you know, say these kind words, even though we don't mean them. It's, it's you know, part of the but good isn't words that, aspect. Yeah, and that can also be a bit dodgy, you know, that yeah. we say things that we don't mean. Yeah, well, you know what I don't like? The whole... Uh, I, mean, I, I like yeah. your explanations, yeah, but, you yeah. know. The I'm thing, I don't like. So when you go to a store, when you go to pay for something, they have to say, oh, it has no worth. Yeah. Like, take it for free. You, yeah. you see, that makes sense to me that it's become part of our communication but uh, it raises a question for me why three times why do I have do we have to refuse three <laughs> times what's well, the significance of it that can be, you know you, you have to say you're not interested it's basically showing that you're um, you're not greedy like you're, you're it's like basically a competition of self-lowering you have to keep lowering yourself as a form of respect to the other person but when yeah. you know that the person doesn't actually think, think of themselves as lower than you <laughs> it just, it's, it's so empty <laughs> yeah. right yeah, uh, I mean, that's the part. Know. It has to be genuine, which, like, you know, when saying قابل it can sound genuine by saying, oh, like, you know, it's not worth you kind yeah. of thing. Like, it, it's all about the tone you use, I suppose. Uh, yeah. Uh, there's also, like, a, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I do, I, in general, I think that it's quite beautiful when, you know, uh, no, hush, because I'm Shia, you go first, you know. Like, yeah, I, yeah. I think that's very sweet. Yeah. But then I notice people like Shia, Hesabishidare, you know. <laughs> he remembers when, you know, when you have or haven't taught off, then he'll get back at you, you know, like you have to be careful around these guys. Yeah, I'm very taught of you, but. You are yeah. very taught oh, of you. Yeah, 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 My mother is the, the most taught of you. My mother's family oh. is oh, really? out of control. Yeah. You told yeah. this story of like her and her ice cream, like where she. Yeah, because <laughs> we were talking about this on Clubhouse yeah, a few yeah. weeks ago, right? I told her, yeah, my, it's a very, uh, my, it's a famous story when I was growing up. My mom, she had done an exchange. She was grew up in Iran, born in Tabriz, then grew up in Tehran, and she did an exchange to the United States. Mm -hmm. This is you know back right. a few decades ago, and when she was eighteen years old, to Oregon, the state of Oregon, and uh, and she was billeting I guess with an American family she stayed with an American family there as a student and then I think there was an American student that went and stayed with my mom's family in, in Iran but um, while she was with this American family for a few months um, the first one of the first nights that she was there my mom was a huge uh, fan to this day I mean she loves ice cream you know ice cream is one of her favorite things and one of the first meals that they had uh, they said, and Sarah, you know what? What would you uh, would you like some ice cream? And she would, and she said, Oh no, no, I couldn't, please, you know. And they went, Okay, you know. <laughs> and so for for weeks they would bring out ice cream Aww. after each meal or yeah. you know whatever, and and oh uh, and then say, Oh, no, don't give any to Sarah. She doesn't like ice oh, cream, no. and she wouldn't say anything, you know. So okay, uh, yeah, that's the that's when that's when the other party doesn't know the protocol, yeah. which is to go, no, 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 you must have some. No, yeah. no please, I couldn't. No, yeah. they're just like, okay, no ice cream for you. That you don't want any. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Speaking of ice cream, let's get to Piaz Miaz. Thank you, Keon. Uh, thank you, uh, Captain Reza, Groovy Shia. Another edition of It's All Persian to Us in the books. Well, it has been quite a year for Masoud Musayi, 
the young Iranian-Canadian entrepreneur, was at a low point mentally and spiritually before COVID started to hit the world. But after a trip back to Iran, he decided to shake things up and turn his lifelong love of cuisine into something special on the internet. This is how Piaz Miaz was born, now a very popular Instagram channel and a growing brand with the intention of introducing Persian cuisine and culture to as many folks around the world as possible. And right now, Masood, better known these days as simply Piaz Miaz, joins me from Vancouver today. Hello, sir. Hi, Gian. How are you? I'm good. It's nice to have you on the program. Thanks for doing this. Thank you for inviting me. The Piaz. <laughs> <laughs> you know, your your Instagram channel and website, it's it's both entertaining and educational about various Persian dishes and ingredients and styles, but your story is also a particularly inspirational one, and I want to get into that. First, let's situate you for folks who are just discovering you. You're you're very open about the fact that you have no formal culinary training, but you say you are a chef with a big vision. What's the big vision? Um, so uh, the big vision is, is is quite simple. The big vision is connecting the world to the rich flavors of Persian cuisine. Uh, it's simple to understand. It's uh, you know we all we all know Persian cuisine is rich. We have we have history, and with history comes there's there's always been food, <laughs> as uh, you know uh, you can't say oh it like backdates to you know as long as we know you know humanity or whatever we, we exist biology existed like people animals we had to eat so as long as there were persians there were there were food there were flavors so there's a lot to dig into with uh, persian cuisine i mean over the years in say in vancouver to your non-iranian friends how do you define persian cuisine like if you were to give a short in a sentence or two describe persian cuisine how do you do it if I don't want to confuse people, I say kebabs. <laughs> <laughs> but that's that's reductive, right? That's not Persian cuisine is about so much more than that, isn't it? Yeah, and it's like and like now before I did that, I'm not gonna lie. Okay, I did that too. People are like, "Oh, what's Persian cuisine?" And I'd be like, "Oh, have you had kebabs?" <laughs> it's like, "Have you had kebabs? Have you had tadi? Or have you had so?" But but now now that I'm doing a lot of research, now that I'm doing, you know. Um, seeing things on on the internet on different accounts it's like it's not kebabs <laughs> it's kebabs is like it's like the logo maybe and it's been because you know you you go to persian restaurants and you go to persian restaurants because of kebabs because that's uh making kebabs at home isn't as hard to do commonly. Yeah. yeah but big part of our persian cuisine big part part of our um foods are stews polos, stews, and uh, we have a lot of complex dishes, a lot of like, uh, so those are the ones that we're so used to. We're, we're almost like spoiled. We get them all the time. You know, there's all this forage, there's all, all, but in restaurants, unfortunately, we like that. We like, you know, showcasing uh, our uh, flavors. I mean, given that this is a relatively new endeavor for you, not the cooking part, but the sharing what you do with the world, um, when you when you say things like uh, I want to introduce our culture to the world and keep our rich culture alive, are those flowery words that one puts on a website, or is is that something that's really important to you in this moment? And if so, why? Um, it's it's very important to me, and that's why I'm I'm really taking my time doing so because I I do want to be knowledgeable. So for for someone that 
hasn't lived in Iran for too many years. I lived in Iran for maybe five, six years max. I visited Iran multiple times, but um, I have recently come to a realization of wow, like when you're outside of Iran or like when when you're not too focused on the culture part, like you're missing out. There's there's so much to tap into, like in terms of like culture, arts, and so. And I feel like we can't let that fade away. Like that's that's has to be a focus. And I feel like food and coming together is where we can have these conversations. We can have uh, stories. You know, I, I tell a lot of my friends. I say, if you look at your life, you know, we don't realize this at the worst times of your life when you're when you're uh, griefing or when you're happy. You know, uh, weddings. It's always like it's it's always around food. It's true, you know. When when your dad's telling you you're not doing great at school or whatever, it's usually at Sham or like dinner. Or if you're um, going chastegari, it's Sham or you know. It's um, so food. Food is a topic that not a lot of people hate. Like if you're hungry, you're hungry. You need to eat, and you'll come to. Um, to words like you'll start expressing you know so by the way as someone who grew up in the west i is there a particular food for hostagari or or is it just <laughs> I, I i have no idea i, I don't know <laughs> i don't know either so um yeah. you, you know this um by the way i appreciate what you just said and we about a month ago we had Farzan Milani on the show, the uh, the professor and the, the great writer, and and one of the things that she said that I think so many of us feel, um, but uh, or or can relate to in different ways, she said I had to leave Iran to find out I'm an Iranian, uh, and it yeah. sounds like to a certain extent that's what you're experiencing as someone who is gaining this appreciation for your ancestral culture because you're not there does that make sense yeah it's as if like the saying of you don't know what you're missing until you're actually missing yeah and i i I feel that and and it's it's funny because now at age like early 30s i'm i'm like you know i'm asking questions of about like hafiz like about like a lot of like our poetry arts and then i get overwhelmed i'm like it's not just like a Google search. This is like thousands of years. <laughs> it's like, right. yeah, it's quite a bit. It can become overwhelming, but it's beautiful. It's right. it's rich. It's like endless Disneyland of. It's a li- lifetime yeah. of discovery if you if you go yeah. into it. So, the global pandemic has been. I mean, it's been an interesting disruptor for people of all stripes. I mean, in some ways, very clearly, it has changed lives for the worse. In some cases, people have lost their lives, but. It was this COVID situation that gave you space for you to create Piaz Miaz. Now, I'm going to get into your story over the last few years, but just to actually the actual precipitant, what was the moment last year that you decided to start posting videos and pictures of your culinary creations? During the pandemic, everyone was home. Everyone was scared to even get out. Um, I... A bunch of my friends asked me, hey, you know, you're you're the guy that's always cooking, whatever, you know, um, why don't you do a live? We will all come on and say hi. And uh, I decided on my own personal account to do live kebab tavi <laughs> for my friends, just just for the fun of it. I mean, like people were like staying in, like drinking, doing whatever. Right. 
so I did that. It was fun. A lot of people joined. And uh, after that, I think this was probably a month or so into the pandemic. And during this period, I had been cooking for myself. Normally, I'd eat out or like I would cook in special occasions. So I was already like playing around with the ingredients. After that, I really, I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed the life. I really enjoyed the energy. I don't think there was a moment, but after that, I started paying attention to ingredients, our cuisine. So I wasn't really focused on our cuisine prior to Piazmias. It was more like, oh, I like to cook. I'll come up with stuff. My man that already is my thing. Like, I'll come up with stuff like burger, not a normal burger. Let's put stuff inside and like, yeah. So it was after that. After that, I started thinking, hey, I'm really enjoying this. Why don't I start introducing our food? You know, and our food is not, even though I did the live and I did kebab, obviously. I'm like, <laughs> our food is not kebab. <laughs> I mean, now, now that it's a thing, Piaz Miaz, how do you decide what dish you're going to introduce next? And and given that you do not have professional schooling around cuisine, what what are the resources you use to make sure you're getting things right? Or is that important or not? I, I don't think there's a right in cooking. Cooking is like art. There's, you know, my way of right or my way of like eating my uh, is it cannot be the same for 85 other million people. It's good to be mindful of what's out there, what's been, you know, what what people have created in the past. Look at that. But I think what's more important is to have that freedom to express, you know, your creativity. Are we all going to fight and say who who does it right? At the end of the well, day, well, my my mother definitely thinks there's a right way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I, and I get that. <laughs> I get messages. I get messages on a daily basis saying that, "Hey, like you made this. That's not right." <laughs> and I get it. What's an example of that? For instance, I I made morasa polo. I don't know if I know what that is. What's yeah, that? Morasa polo is basically jeweled rice. Uh-huh. Okay. When I was making it, actually, it's funny because it came from my mom. So I was making it for the first time. I'd never made it before. I was like, mom, how do you make this? And like, um, it's interesting. Uh, I think I want to play around with it. So one of the ingredients is uh, orange peel. Mm-hmm. And traditionally, you know, the right way is boil the orange peel, you know, have it, you know, uh, boil a couple times, dry it and just put it on rice. I was like, that's not fun. <laughs> I'm going to make it my way. <laughs> so basically what I, what I, my mindset is, how do you take something that's traditional or how do you take something that's good and enhance it? So what did but you, it, what did you do with the orange peel? I deep fried it. Oh yeah. I deep fried it. So I, I peeled it not traditionally super long, like curly fries. I uh, boiled them to get the bitterness out and then I deep fried it. Prior, you get this dry orange peel, you know, that I personally didn't like that much. Now you get this textured, curly sort of uh, orange peel that has texture even uh, on top of flavor. Yeah. My mom right away was like, no, 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 (laughs) you can't do that. I was like, I can, (laughs) I might fail, but... Yeah. Let me let me ask you about her and your family. You were born in Karachi in Iran in 1987. And you, you said that your your mom and your family were the inspiration in terms of falling in love with Persian cuisine. What do you, what do you remember about being a kid and your mom's cooking? It's interesting to me, Master, because to me mo- most kids love their mom's cooking 
but don't necessarily learn how to do it, especially if you're when you're a little boy. Would you watch her techniques even back then? No, I, I definitely didn't look at techniques. I appreciate the cooking process because I did see back in the day, I, I, when I experienced Iran at a time where you had to go at a certain time to like um, a grocery store to get sabzi. You know, you had to go through the process of like cleaning it. And, you know, there was like, I saw that and I was like, I appreciated that from like childhood, I think. I don't think technique. Like, I think I was just that chubby kid that was always eating. <laughs> <laughs> My parents were probably like, yeah, That's always it. like, Master, are you eating again? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Right. So you're, uh, I mean, your dad is an entrepreneur, always wanted to seek opportunities for you and your siblings that you just talked about outside of Iran. And this this leads to, uh, I mean, we just talked about you being in Dubai. There's a very turbulent time for you and your family through the 1990s when your family is moving, trying to do this emigration out of Iran. And first you're in Dubai, then you're back in Iran, then you're in Turkey, and you end up in Syria right around the time yeah. of 9-11. Your dad has already come to Canada at that point, and you end up being stuck in Syria for a year yeah. and a half. Uh, what kind of an impact did that period have on you? A lot, in, in different ways. I think um, at early age, I mean, when, when we were in Syria, I was probably 13, 12 to 13, not knowing too much about the outside world, not knowing too much about the seriousness of life, that you go through difficulties and uh, later on you realize that, you know, oh, wow, I experienced things in my early years that now gives me a deeper understanding of life. Mm -hmm. When you experience it at an early age, then it kind of embeds in your, your, your mind to have perspective, to have different perspective on life, to think deeper, not not be at like surface level. So it was difficult. Yeah, and in Syria, we spent about a year and a half. We were separated uh, from my dad because my dad was already here uh, prior to us. Um, yeah, it, it, it was difficult. 9-11 happened right as we were about to receive our immigration documents. And you and couldn't that. go to school in Syria, right? um we we could i i don't want to say we couldn't uh it was just so we were so uncertain of what's what's happening and like it was almost like that covid happened like the pandemic happened and like no one knew like hey are things going to open up next week or like mm -hmm. i i don't think me and you even now talking about it knew that pandemic is going to last this long right right it was kind of like that 9 11 people were like what's happening who are they you know right we were being we were being labeled persians were being labeled like everyone like everyone's pointing fingers and like so um there was opportunity to go to school but like we didn't know how long we were there like initially we planned to be there maybe a month or two so um just you know i ask these questions because it they're so related to the the experience of of so many iranians in the diaspora i mean at the end of the day you know, people are people, but we do tend to you stop any Iranian, scratch beneath the surface and ask them about their life. And, you know, we've experienced things that um, uh, most folks say living in Canada, you know, haven't experienced. It's not it's not uh, the normal uh, life for most people to be uh, for a kid to be in Dubai and, and Turkey and stuck in Syria and, you know, wondering where their home is. And and part and parcel of that as well is that you end up being away from your dad for about three years or three and a half years. 
How yeah. did how did that affect you? Um, not having that dad figure, you know, not that not having that dad figure is obviously. Um, I'm not saying he was fully absent, but like when growing up at that age, you do miss it. You realize that after you do miss it, uh, but um, but then at the same time, it, it makes you wonder. Like at that age, you're like you're asking why, like why the hell are we doing this? Like why are we going like to Canada? Where is Canada? I don't even know where Canada was. If you asked me back then, I would think it's next to, I don't know, Africa. Like, Did you yeah. want to go back to Iran? I didn't know what I want. Mm-hmm. When you don't know what you want, you're constantly in this confusing state of, you know, asking questions. But at the same time, you're like, I don't care. You know, you think everything is okay, but then it's not okay because your dad's away. And you, you're constantly asking your mom, you know, when is that coming? Or like, when are we going? And uh, you're it's, not also, it's also hard to make. I mean, this is pre-social media. It's hard to make friends when you're in a different country every couple of years, right? Hundred percent. And 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 in the countries where you feel like, you know, as, like you're passing through. You know, you're not there. You're not there to make friends. I mean, we we we, we did. Luckily, you know, uh, I don't want to say I had bad experiences in any any of those countries. It's foreign, you know. Um, but, uh, when you're there to pass through, we're there for a short period when your mind is set on the idea of like, oh, we're just here to, you know, get our documents, get our immigration stuff and go see that, you know, go start our new life. And when that keeps getting extended, prolonged, then it it does have psychological effects on, you know, at at that early age, you start realizing that life isn't all sunshine and rainbows. Right, right. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you, you do finally arrive in Vancouver in the early 2000s. Was the process of assimilating into life in Canada an easy one for you, or did, or no. or was that difficult for you? This immigrant kid post 9/11 lands in in Vancouver. I don't even know how how good your English was, or I mean, it's very good now, obviously. What 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 was that experience like when you first came to North America? Very difficult. It was difficult in. In many ways, we had not been schooling for about a year, year and a half. Uh, we come here, we, had, we hadn't seen our, our dad for three, three plus years. A brand new country, it's raining. <laughs> it's raining like crazy. It's dark gray. Um, and now we're told we have to go to this English school. We're like, I don't want to say my English was zero, but because in Dubai, we had a little bit of exposure to like English, um, like TV, mostly TV and like people outside spoke English, but like you're a kid, but we went to Farsi school in Dubai, in uh, Persian school. So now here we are in Vancouver trying to like really open our luggages and be like, this is it. This is the final destination. Like it was difficult, like going, going to school, being the Persian guy. And I'm like at that age of like 14, 15, you feel like you're cool, but you're not. And like, there's, there's a lot of yeah internal battles that you're trying to uh, figure out. You know, you talked earlier about being go, 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 about being ambitious. That is borne out by your the history of you in the last 15 years. I mean, you there's been no shortage of jobs and businesses you've been involved in. You love sports. You, you were going to be a professional athlete at one point. You've been a referee for many years. You ran a UPS store. You worked at Safeway. You worked at TELUS and Shaw. You delivered newspapers. You tried starting companies. Did it occur to you in all of those years that i mean given 
that you are Piaz Miaz now. Did, I, I'm just curious in all, in all that time if it ever occurred to you that cooking and cuisine could be your path. Honest answer, no. And now I know why. Now I know why because um, in our societies, I'm, I'm just going to talk about Persians. You're born expected to be a doctor, Mohandes, you know, and so you're told right off the bat coming out of the hospital that this is what you have to be and I'm going to measure your success in life, whether or not you're, you have those titles, jobs, or you have tangible things like cars, houses, whatever. So that, that's what I was chasing. I've always been chasing. I mean, I'm not saying I'm not chasing that now, but with, with a different purpose. Like um, somehow being a, a chef or going into cuisine wouldn't be good enough, wouldn't be this kind but of it's, it's even now. Even now, it's not. It's like, unfortunately, uh, it's not valued. In, in a, really, though? In our- really? In a, in a period where we're, you know, foodies and everybody loves... Uh, I feel like chefs have become stars now. I feel like that's a... Even in the Persian community, that's valued. But you would know better. I mean, the feedback you get. I don't... It's, it's, definitely, it's definitely coming out. It's, I'm, I'm talking Persian community. Yes. I, I think as, as a society, as, as, as a culture, we need to really leverage our arts. You know, we have to recognize that artists, you know, chefs, musicians are the true definition of success. Because when, when you are an artist or when you're doing something out of passion and love, then you're truly living life. But when you're chasing things, tangible things, future things, and you're blocking those um, springs of like creativity, then then you're 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 not li- really living life. You're you're chasing. Yeah, I mean, you could be passionate about being a doctor and engineer. That's that is possible. You could, yeah. But you and me both know there's, <laughs> there's <laughs> it's not it's not always the case. Uh, does it it's piss you off that you didn't start this? Or I mean, you're you're young you know you're in your early 30s but but that you does do you ever think wow if i had gone into if i had become piaz miaz at the age of 19 by now i'd be 13 years into this or something you know no sometimes i do but but no because you have to know the opposite side to really appreciate the what and now so you have to know the dark to know the light you know if you don't if i didn't experience if i didn't go through the whole experience of my life at doing different things, going through different phases of, you know, mental well-being and like physical and like doing things that I didn't necessarily want to do, but I was doing it because it would give me that title, right? Like owning a software company, being the CEO or, you know, having the best car that I could afford, you know. I, I think it's important for me to have had experienced those things to now realize that, this this is better. Let me let me ask you about the dark as opposed to the light, uh, because I agree with you. You don't know. Uh, I mean, you don't even know what happiness is if you haven't felt sadness. So that yes. you know, that it's it's worth being able to experience all those things. You um, end up going through a really tough time a couple of years ago. Your um, speaking of mental health, your 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 company was failing. Uh, you were dealing with anxiety and impression, uh, depression. You were having trouble sleeping. Uh, you were 65 pounds overweight. Um, can, can you talk about what was going wrong in your life if you feel uh, comfortable doing that? 
Uh, yeah, there wasn't anything going wrong in my life. There was a lot of things going wrong internally. As human beings, we tend to uh, externalize. We we turn we tend to turn into things as a reason for our let's say unhappiness. Or uh, you know, I realized I think two two and a half years ago that it's not the external stuff. It's nothing it has nothing to do with my company. It has nothing to do with my partner. It has nothing to do with my parents. It's it's me. How did you realize that? I, I think through uh, going through phases where I just was not on not happy about life, mm. and I did I was the person who who would blame things. You know, I, I do now too. I'm not saying I'm I'm like this amazing robot. That's like I I would blame things. You know, if company didn't work, it's the employees' problem. If software doesn't work, it's you know, it's like. It, but that's the problem with when you get into that vicious circle of blaming you it's so easy negativity multiplies and and be, because it requires you not to do a lot of thinking it requires all all you need to do is judge <laughs> yeah and that, that's it like hey this interview isn't going well it's Gian's fault for sure <laughs> like it's you know it's oh my god like he didn't set it up right you know well that probably would be true but uh, <laughs> if, if the interview wasn't going well i would take ownership of that but there are two events that happened in your life it seems that change your life when you get and get you back on track in a big way a couple of years ago and one is a trip back to iran the other the death of your dear uncle which you mentioned earlier i want to ask you about both of them um one at a time so in the middle of that rough period of your life that you've just been talking about a couple of years ago you suddenly and really spontaneously from what i understand pick up and go to iran yeah. You text your dad from the airport and say, I'm, I'm going, I'm going to Iran. What did you learn from that trip back to Iran for a couple of months? So at that time, I was, I was pretty low. Like nothing was making me really happy. Like I was blaming things. And trip to Iran was an escape, escape from the reality of, you know, all my problems. So I thought if I run away from it, it can't catch up to me. Hmm. I got a ticket to Iran. I joined my mom. My mom was traveling to Iran. I called my family from the airport and I said, I'm going to Iran. <laughs> yeah, it was interesting times. So, um, yeah. Did you somehow find yourself when you were there? <laughs> I very soon realized that my problems uh, also got a ticket to Iran. <laughs> right, right. There's, there's, there's nowhere you can fly to get away from them. Yeah, right. Yeah, so... And Iran was um, amazing. Iran made me slowly start realizing that the problems are all internal. And over time, from my, my time in Iran and uh, traveling through different parts of Iran and spending some time with my best friend, my family, um, I did realize that, hey, you know, this is like, I need to work on me. Like I need that's that's my mission. That's my that's my goal. Like mm -hmm. when I'm when I'm back, like I, I'm not working on stuff. I'm working on me. And at that time, I was 65 pounds overweight, <laughs> but worse than my 65 pounds. I was probably 150 pounds overweight mentally because hmm. uh, I was having anxiety attacks. I was having, you know, you come back, yeah, and then at the beginning of COVID. You lose your dear uncle um, 
to COVID. He was only 55 years old. Yeah. Um, tell me about the impact that had on you. Um, I was already in my, on my journey of like self-discovery. I was doing a lot of things. I was meditating. I was, you know, uh, exercising. I was taking time for myself. When that happened, it really, really nailed the coffin. Like nailed that really put me in a state where I, I went a step further. I thought about life in a different perspective. I put myself in my uncle's situation shoes. Like I, I thought, Hey, you know what? We are going so fast about life. What happened to my uncle or what happened even now, like people are dying. It could happen to me. Like it could happen to anyone. If that were to happen to me tomorrow, okay, and I'm on my deathbed, okay, how would I feel about my life? And that like sends shock waves through my entire body. Because if if that was last year, because like I was like, if it happens tomorrow, I would laugh at my life. Because all I've been doing is chasing, chasing, chasing future, chasing for the future, living in the past forgetting about the present. I mean, it's, um, it's a big, it's a big lesson. I, the, the, the thing is, is that I, and I say this as someone who completely relates to the idea of, um, of go, go, go and, and the ambitions and the, and the, maybe the culturally, um, imposed, uh, notion of you got to be successful in these certain areas. You got to do this. You got to make money. You got to, um, and the anxiety, um, it's a matter of how you can reprogram yourself or rehabilitate yourself. You know, so if if so much of your difficulties have been related to the anxiety of needing to get ahead and find material success, the obvious question to me is, how will you avoid falling back into that pattern with Piaz Miaz? I mean, you are finding success. You know, there's a video of you from three months ago going, we just hit 10,000, 10, 10, you know, followers on Piaz Miaz. Now 20,000 is the next goal. You've already hit 20,000. I see the ambitious guy, you know, as much yeah. as it's also a beautiful project and it's something that is, is feels wholesome and it feels right for you and, if it, and it's bringing you so much. How do you avoid falling back into that pattern? You need constant reminders. You you need to. So if I look at it this way, um, if you want to change your mindset, if you want to be in mindful of your life, uh, you need to make. You can't be in a diet. You have to live in an environment where you're constantly reminded that the true value of life is the present moment, and the true value of life is you, your health, your well-being, and how you do that. I mean. For me, it's meditation. Every morning I meditate. I take the time to go exercise. I spend time in nature. Uh, things that you can't buy with money. So wait a second. <laughs> so you get up in the morning, and how, how soon do you meditate after you get up? Pretty much immediately. So you don't check yeah. your you don't check your phone or your text messages or uh, surf the, the internet or any of that stuff. Sometimes I do, but I don't get into anything serious. I try to meditate first. I meditate, grab a coffee, and then, yeah. How long do you meditate for? Um, usually about half an hour, sometimes. Wow. 20 minutes, sometimes, yeah. Meaning, sorry, but what, what form of meditation is that? Are you sitting there? Uh, I do guided meditation. Okay. Yeah, guided meditation where, like, different days, depending on how I feel, I'll do gratitude. 
you know, one day I'll do envisioning goals, you know, uh, one day just like appreciation of life, you know, uh, appreciation of me. Um, yeah, attracting the right energies. And yeah. And you do intermittent fasting, right? Yes. Has that been helpful? I mean, does that change? Is that a, that's a lifestyle change? It's, it's a full lifestyle change. How, how um, so? I mean, obviously, it, I, I know that it works to lose weight or something, but I, I how is it a lifestyle change? Initially, obviously, I was looking at it. I was like 65 pounds overweight. I, I, I need to figure out something. I wanted to do diets, but I had I after doing a little bit of research, you know, over time, I've done research over time. I've done like different soup diets and whatever it, it, it worked but because i'm going through a phase of now a lifestyle change i'm like i'm looking at planning my life like I, it can't be a diet because if i lose you know if i lose 20 30 40 pounds 50 pounds and have to regain it this doesn't work so i started being exposed to this the science of uh longevity like you know prolonging your your life you know being able to live longer and um i came across intermittent fasting the science behind intermittent fasting is very interesting uh what it does to your body how it allows your body to really cycle through the waste that sits in your digestive tract and you know how it maximizes the the energy uh it it maximizes the output on on basically the, the the material that's that's the ingredients that are inside your digestive tract because now you're star not starving but like you're allowing your body a 16 hour break to mm. do so right you know this is the thing just like, to clarify for anybody listening who doesn't know exactly what i mean this is the thing where you eat uh with impunity you eat as much as you want for eight hours and then at the end of that eight hours, you you wait 16 hours again in your cycle yeah. until you can eat again, right? You can just drink water or something, but nothing else? Yeah, yeah drink water, coffee with, with, with no additives, like it's just black coffee or, or black tea or green tea. Um, but here's the cool thing. So a lot of people say you have, like, there's a 16-hour window where you don't eat, you know, you try to drink as much water as possible because you now your body needs more water but that eight hour window a lot of initially when i started i was like oh eight hours like i can eat a ton you start becoming you start falling into this mindset of appreciating your body so even that eight hour period you it's it's like now you're trying to create this well-oiled machine to take you to a long distance, to take you to like hopefully 110 years old. And you don't want to feed that shit. Mm, right. <laughs> Window of eight hours, you almost, you're like, I want to eat good, you know? Because as soon as you start eating bad, you start, I don't know, for me, I feel, I, I, I'm i not saying I don't have um, uh, cheat days or whatever, but like I somewhat you feel guilty because you're like, now I've done all this work, you know? Now it's been, almost two years now that I've been doing this and uh, I try to eat healthy, healthier. Can I ask you, do you, do you think that, um, because there, I, I always hear different things, you know, I, I, about this. Do you think that Persian food, Persian cuisine is, can be healthy? I remember when I started, uh, I'm no Piaz Miaz, but I, I cook Persian food. And when I started making things like 
Horstebadem June. It was really depressing because I always thought, oh, Horstebadem June is kind of healthy. It's just eggplant, and you, then you realize the amount of oil <laughs> it takes to to soak the, the 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 eggplant yeah. to make it, you know, is is not healthy. You know, it's not that healthy. Um, and, and I mean, people will say, oh, chela kebab. It's just kebab. Kebab is good for you. It's some meat, you know. But I, I, where where do you stand on whether our cuisine is something that we can consume and be healthy at the same time as? So here's the thing. I don't think there's one size fits all because what's healthy for me might not be healthy for you. I know people that run on like 90% protein diet and they're very healthy. And I know people that are vegan diet and they're still struggling. So everybody's different. You got to know your own body. Um, To answer the question about Persian cuisine, I think Persian cuisine can be healthy. It is healthy. We have a lot of fresh ingredients. If we start respecting the ingredients and being open to uh, maybe prepping them different ways, it can even be healthier. Like Horish, Horish Badem June, there are ways, there are other ways to do it. And I'm exploring. <laughs> Masud, the world of being a chef is it's obviously competitive. I mean, uh, I remember interviewing Gordon Ramsay at one point, and, and he he wasn't shy by the fact that he doesn't get along with, uh, doesn't like Jamie Oliver. You know, at that time they were competing against each other. Do you, have you experienced other chefs out there kind of looking over the shoulder at you as you've quickly emerged here and kind of going, who's the new kid? Why, why, you know, settle down. How come you've got so many followers (laughs) or uh, do you feel that energy at all? Or has it been generally positive in the community? Uh, The community is good. The community is good. I, I think there's definitely, there needs to be more togetherness. No, I've been, I've been fortunate to be very support. Like I've been supported a lot by the community. I can't say hundred percent, you know, there's, there's definitely been, but I think that's normal. That's, you know, there's never going to be, you can't jive with everyone. You can't. Sure. Yeah. Were you surprised when you launched Piaz Mias that it took off so quickly or did you have a sense that you were onto something? very surprised because uh knowing me knowing my past life my past me i i want success fast i want it you know but go it's this is this is very interesting going into this i didn't want it like i didn't want anything tangible fast you know but it came to me but but it's i think it's 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 a byproduct of something that you're passionate about Mm-hmm. things just happen you know supports come you know ideas come cool things happen you know like like i'm having an interview i'm like no one you know i'm having a cool interview talking about like my life and this is great well you've, you've already said if it's, if the interview is shit it's my fault so uh, <laughs> you don't have anything to worry about uh who who is your audience what have you learned about who your audience is my audience is majority females um, mainly now I have a big audience from uh, North America, obviously Canada, uh, California, United States, Iran, Tehran is big uh, parts of Europe. And um, I think they're mostly young professionals that kind of relates, you know, because they've been exposed to other cuisines, you know, they might be outside of Iran. They're exposed to like Mexican cuisine or they're exposed to like, they pay, they go to restaurants and, you know, pay for expensive dinners or pay for experiences. But none of those, most of the time, none of those are Persian. And now it's for them, it's intriguing that, you know, I am 
maybe plating things differently or doing it my own way on like i'm thinking outside of the box what's the most interesting you uh, feedback you get from people in iran feedback is um it's usually good it's usually uh people are like we're proud of you you know it's amazing do what you're doing um i do get criticized for not doing it in farsi why it, you it, you could do a version in farsi you're you're obviously fluent have you thought about that yeah i mean there's a couple of reasoning why i don't want to focus too much on farsi is because my my big vision is to connect the world mm-hmm. you know and iran is part of that world but a lot of us know farsi a lot of us know about war misadzis or whatever i don't need to t- teach you or teach your mom or teach you, you know, but i want to yeah. te- like i i don't want to say i want to teach i want to expose non-persians like my honestly my goal is within the next 5 6 to 10 years that persian cuisine becomes the new let's say mexican cuisine mm. or japanese cuisine yeah, where everyone's talking yeah. about sushi and yeah like i've been waiting for that like, yeah why not yeah. why not like thai food and sushi everything's had their moment you know and it, it only makes sense that persian food it, it's it's you know it, we can have that moment a guy I, it's past due it's past due um, you know, I was going to ask you what your ultimate dream is, but you just said it. I appreciate that. Listen, I really appreciate the time, and and I know that some of the things you've said in this interview, are, I haven't seen you say elsewhere yet. I I I, I do yeah. appreciate your candor for being rook. Um, you know, if we talk about this as a obviously, it's an ongoing evolution people's lives. It's not all going to be up from here. You're going to have uh, ups and downs. But if this has been a a heartwarming or inspirational story of someone who's who was really down not that long ago and has really found your footing in a really positive way. What is your best advice to people hitting a low point and going through the toughest time of their life? It's okay to go through those times. It's completely okay to go through t- those times. It's uh, uh, we can't panic, you know. When, when we hit, I think when we hit low low times, low low points in our life, we tend to panic. We tend to like, it's the end, that it's not okay to be low. If once you start being okay with yourself, being okay with the state of whatever that state is, for everyone's different, then you start listening to yourself. Mm. You know, you, you, you stop uh, blaming things, you stop blaming even yourself. You just need to take time and like listen to yourself. Shut everything down. And honestly, like you, you don't need people's advice. You know, all you need to do is yeah. All you need to do is listen to yourself. Yeah, start reasoning. Masoud, Piaz Miaz, I thank you very much for this today. <laughs> I thank you. Uh, thank you. Thank you for whoever's listening. I, I'm really honored to be here. <laughs> thank you for uh, listening to my story. And uh, I hope we can have more of this. Well, take care of yourself, brother. And post-COVID, you're, you know, I've already signed you up for making food for uh, the Rook team. And uh, <laughs> we're going get, to get you to Toronto, you know, put you in a kitchen. And uh, there's, uh, you know, there's no shortage of Shekamus uh, on this team that are looking forward to your, tasting your, your delights. I, I would love that. You don't have to ask me twice. Thank you, brother. Take care of yourself. Thank you. Okay. See you. Bye. Masoud Musai, a.k.a. Piaz Miaz, is a chef, a creator, a social media sensation based in Vancouver. He can be found at piazmiaz.com. Masoud joined us from Vancouver, Canada today. 
And this is full time for Rook, Shia June. Yes. Our website, rookmedia.com. As I said uh, earlier in the show, we invite you to become a patron of Rook and help support keep this project going at uh, rookmedia.com. Just press the support us button for $5 a month or $10 a month. You can be a patron. Thanks to the amazing team who put this show together each week. Producer Susan Ponta, the artist Thoughtful Nagin, the fabulous Keon Sabi Roham, Ahai Mehdad, Master Muhammad, Captain Rezan Groovy Shia. Thank you to all of you out there supporting us and sharing our content and subscribing. You can subscribe to Rook on any of our platforms. If you've not done so already, please do. You can find me on Instagram at Gian Gomeshi. See you on Clubhouse tomorrow night. Mizunbashi. Bashi.